0: G'day, I'm Rowan Mackey, and I'm joined by my dad, clinical psychologist, Chris Mackey, and this is Psych Spiels and Silver Linings. All right, well, dad, we've been wanting to talk about grief for a little while, and and resilience is another thing that we've wanted to talk about on the podcast, and we thought, what better way to do it than get such a world expert, if not the world expert on grief and resilience... So today we're joined by someone who was trained at the University of Pennsylvania with leaders in positive psychology, including friend of the show, Martin Seligman. She's worked with the US military and other powerful organizations developing positive resilience strategies. But all of her extensive training was put to the test during the Christchurch earthquakes of 2011. And after helping many people through this immensely difficult time, her resilience was again tested after the tragic death of her daughter, Abby her daughter's close friend, Ella, and Ella's mother, close friend of the family, Sally. We are so lucky to be joined by such an expert in resilience and grieving and presenter of one of the best TED Talks that I've personally ever <laughs> seen. Please welcome Lucy Hone. Thank you so much Wonderful. for joining us today, Lucy. Thank you, Lucy.
1: Kiara, Chris and Rowan, um, great to be with you and all of your listeners today. Thanks for asking me to join you. Wonderful. Yeah, well, Lucy, I
0: I suppose uh, one of the things that is really interesting about the work that you do is, is with grief in particular. And one of the things that we often hear about grief is, for example, the five stages of grief. And it's almost as if there's a bit of a prescription that seems that there is out there for grief. But one of the things that really comes across with your work and everything that you do is that this notion of, you know, there's no correct way to grieve, that everyone grieves differently and we're all going to, I suppose, grieve in our own way. I just wonder what your thoughts are on that, whether you could just speak to that a little bit for us.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And thank you for raising what is such an important um, issue about grief. is that we have all been handed Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's five stages model. And, you know, for pretty much everyone out there um, in the English speaking world, they could they've probably heard of it. They could probably name a couple of those stages of grief that came from Elizabeth's model um, way back I think she first kind of you know came up with it in the 70s or 80s so you know it's been around for a long time it is still taught in all health science really and widely practiced and prescribed by anybody who is a helping or health professional for grief which is a shame because there's Virtually no empirical evidence to support that we humans go through these five stages. So it kind of um, drives me nuts, really, that it's been so heavily perpetuated by academic institutions who should know better um, and health, you know, nurses and all sorts of people who are having some kind of role in health supporting the bereaved still trot out the five stages of grief and tell grievers that this is what to expect. So, A, it drives me nuts because it's not actually um, good science. And we do know that people don't go through those five stages of grief. You know, there is no tidy model, sadly, to describe how we grieve. It's messy. It's chaotic. It's different for everyone. There is no linear process some people don't go through some of those stages. But the other thing that really drives me nuts about it is that it's passive. It just tells you um, what's going to happen to you. And so it kind of perpetuates this myth that when we are bereaved, we're victims and we're helpless. And frankly, we feel helpless enough as it is without being told that this is what's going to happen to us. And there's You know, we've just got to ride that, those stages out. So in my work, what I have, what I experienced with my own grief and what I have really done with my work is found that people want, they want to be active participants in their grieving process. They want so desperately to know what it is that they can do when they are faced with the helplessness that comes with grief you know there's nothing you can do about the person has died but there is lots that you can do to help yourself and others come to terms with and adapt to that loss and in all my work in you know the books i've written so i get lots of emails back from readers all over the world and the ted talk as you mentioned rowan but also we do we train you know thousands of people all the time in resilience and the most common thread of response is people say thanks for making me feel empowered giving me hope and giving me ideas of practical strategies that are backed by science that i can use to just support me through this you know really um, tough process
2: Yes, that comes across very strongly in your book, Resilient Grieving, Lucy. The the, the contrast that you make between grief reactions and mm. grief responses. Mm. So would you like mm. to say a little bit more about that emphasis on grief responses rather than actions, mm. about how there are things that you can do?
1: Yeah, and this is Tom Attig, Attig with a G. This is his work. Um, and I came across it when I was researching my book, Resilient Grieving. Um And it really resonated with me because his thinking is that we go through the brief reaction, which is your immediate reaction, which are all those kind of physical and emotional reactions, behavioral reactions we have. And you can't do much about those. You know, any bereaved parent or anybody who has suffered a traumatic loss in particular will tell you there's a physical pain in your solar that you can't seem to get rid of and you can't stop ruminating about the person you've lost in your head you know you just cannot stop yourself thinking about them and you can't stop the crying and these are all the kind of the physical grief reactions and as humans we have you know um, not so much choice and control over those they seem to control us and that's human and that's normal um but what Attig says, um this is the aspect of his work that I love so much, is that we do have choice, choices over how we respond. And that is, by that he means your kind of long term response and all of the myriad, tiny moments of choosing how you think and choosing how you act um, as you go about relearning to live in the world and that is another one of his phrases that I love so much that you know that is what losing someone or something that you love is about is this process of relearning to live without them physically present in your life any longer. Um, so it is I think it for me it was a really useful description to know that those emotional reactions. I had less choice over, and certainly, boy, do you get those kind of grief hijacks? I think I talk about those, write about those in my book, um, where grief just overwhelms you and comes at you fast and furious, and the, you know, you find yourself in the supermarket aisle sobbing because some stupid crisp chip flavour reminds you of the person you've lost, or something like that, and there's nothing you can do about that. But over time. You know, there are choices we can all make that that nurture and empower us as we go through that adapt it's a process of adaptation, really, as we learn to live in this new life that we didn't choose and we didn't want, but we can't avoid. Mm.
2: And you mentioned quite a number of specific strategies, Lucy, that we'll come to shortly. But it seems broadly that there are two sides of things to manage with grief one is how do people process their painful emotions or allowing ways and time to process your painful emotions to help adjust to the loss but there's also getting on with things to re-engage with the world Mm -hmm. at a broad Mm -hmm. level how do people try and find a balance between those two sides of things
1: Yes, and that actually you're pretty much, Chris, referring to their Strobe and Schutz oscillation theory, they call it, and that they have that we have these kind of dual processes going on when we are grieving. And I think this is a really useful modern day bereavement theory um, that is much more helpful to understand than those five stages. Um I like it because it talks about the fact that sometimes we we oscillate between. Approaching our grief, really facing up to it, doing something about it. For instance, clearing out the cupboards of the person you love or making yourself go to a school event without the person you love, for instance. So sometimes we can approach it and then sometimes and sometimes we can do lots of that. And then the other times we can do very little of that but we oscillate between approaching it, our grief, and withdrawing and almost kind of licking our wounds and recovering, you know, and sort of hunkering down and going, no, I can't go with it. Don't go anywhere near it today. And the most important point to make here is that's okay to oscillate between approaching and then withdrawing. So I think that's been really helpful for me. And I certainly get a lot of feedback in our training and from readers who have said, yeah, thank you, that understanding that I can kind of, you know, leap backwards and forwards and it takes time, that's been really helpful too, yeah.
2: It comes across very much, your descriptions of being open to and accepting the pain, accepting suffering as part of life. But you also highlight that there can be positive emotions that can exist Mm. alongside the negative, even if they might be at times more fleeting. And you describe ways of working at that in the context of it's partly a matter of your intention to put your attention here rather than there. And you talk about Mm. tuning into the good and hunting the good stuff. Can Mm. you tell us more about that alongside one's pain?
1: Yes. So I think let's break this down. The most important thing to understand about my work and this concept of resilient grieving or being an active participant in your loss process is um, that we're not trying to diminish. The goal is to adapt and to learn to live without the person that you love. The goal isn't to squash all negative emotions. Negative emotions You know, all that sadness and the kind of keening and longing are absolutely miserable. And there are certainly times where you do want to take a break from them, and that's okay. And that's healthy to want to have a break. But in all of my work, I am never suggesting that people suppress them or try and avoid them. Actually, the real guts of it is that you have to experience these hard, challenging, horrible, emotions and learn to walk through them um is kind of my language and and the more i did so the more i learned that they don't last that long i think i think the world has become you know particularly i know in australia at the moment there's lots of conversations around toxic positivity and i think that's quite a useful phrase because the world does seem to have become very fearful of negative emotions um, as we try and kind of sanitize and mothball our lives and you know try and live lives that have no pain and have no suffering and are you know one kind of long instagram happy reels kind of show um and of course frankly that's just bullshit but that's not real that's not life life um because it involves attachment and we lose things and people then you know life involves misery and that is just part of living so I think that's really important to understand that. But some of, I you know, I would say some of the beauty of this work is that we, what has emerged is that positive emotions also have a purpose and a place in bereavement too. And this is relatively new science. And actually, for me, I like to view this as one of the good legacies that came out of so many men dying during the AIDS epidemic all those years ago because Judy Moskovitz, who was one of the researchers then, she's, we've, we've done a podcast on grieving with Dr. Denise Quinlan, who's my co-director at the Institute, and she interviewed in, throughout kind of 2020 in the COVID pandemic, she interviewed some of the leading resilience and bereavement researchers globally And Judy Moskowitz's interview is on our website, so it's worth taking a look at that. I can give you the links afterwards and listening to it. And I love that Judy describes how really, you know, this was many years ago, back in the sort of turn of the century, end of the 20th century. They started interviewing people who were either dying of AIDS or supporting someone who was dying of AIDS. And so these researchers, American researchers, were running these studies to, you know, to... kind of follow that experience and what she describes is and she's a leading global researcher now she describes the fact that at the end of the interviews the research interviews the participants often ask the researchers but you haven't asked me about the positive experiences you haven't asked me about why this love and supporting this man is so important to me and meaningful and You haven't asked me about the good moments in my day. And so this was the kind of the emergent realization that even in the most harrowing times, we as humans still experience positive emotions. And not only is that okay, because lots of people think that isn't okay and they need to avoid them, but actually it gives you a break from the really hard work Of experiencing negative emotions while you are grieving. And so, of course, negative emotions, you know, grief is pervaded with negative emotions. It's bloody awful and horrible and miserable. So, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it, that as humans we've also evolved this need and ability to punctuate that with the occasional positive emotion and positive experience. And that also resonates with that. That speaks to the oscillation theory you know that we approach our grief and then we withdraw and we want to kind of we just have to kind of balance up the scales so and from my personal experience truly in our darkest days i was astounded and yeah just amazed at how much love and beauty and kindness and incredible acts yeah of kindness and things that i was grateful for and just sheer beauty of the things that Abby's friends and Ella's friends did for us and the the way they looked after us and the way they leaned into their love of the friends they lost you know and i'm talking about 12 year old children here um so it was to see it firsthand to see the the love and the hope and the all of those good bits that come with the bad was a truly humbling experience.
2: Well I think it helps put positive psychology in further perspective where Mm. Martin Seligman has often described that positive psychology is not a happyology and so there's no shirking in your writing and your TED talks and your expression about the pain and how life including that suffering and probably never more than being a bereaved parent but that was something mm. different about your approach as well to acknowledge that there could be these positive experiences that often people wouldn't be talking about or acknowledging but but also to acknowledge the difficulty that people might face at first with mm. grief and grief one of the things that you talk about is how it can help to re-establish routines can you say a little bit more about that about the potential importance of re-establishing routines at earlier stages
1: thanks Chris because it's such a good question it's particularly important to re-establish some kind of routine I'm using that word very loosely here if you have gone through some kind of traumatic event and traumatic bereavement in particular the Christchurch earthquakes taught me this and so as you said in your intro Rowan, when I first came back from the University of Pennsylvania and I've been studying my master's there with Karen Rybich and Marty Seligman on resilience psychology, I'd only really just returned within, and within six months, we had that massive February 2011 earthquake, which decimated our city and killed 195 people. And we had several really big earthquakes afterwards. And the whole of our kind of central city was, I don't think we went in there for 18 months. So you know, it was it was really sizable and we've lost something between, I can't remember now if it's 70% or 90% of our buildings have been rebuilt um, and we lost the whole of the downtown, the whole of that kind of, you know, central city area. So what I learned then was a lot about disaster management and disaster response, which I wouldn't have learned about. Um, and actually all that I learned equipped me pretty well for the traumatic side after Abby's death because she was killed in a car accident Ella and Abby and Sally were killed you know instantly on a Saturday afternoon and so you've got trauma and you've got grief and in what I learned about trauma from the earthquakes taught me that when trauma hits and your world is turned upside down your poor brain is it, it's like someone's sent a wrecking ball into your life and and so you are a, a you know stunned you are completely stunned really and not the world as you know it doesn't operate in the way that you think it should and the way that you've been telling yourself all your life it should and so by attempting to reestablish any kind of routine in any fashion that you can is really important because it tells your brain that the time for that fight, flight or freeze stress response is over and that it can start to dial that stress response back down. And so I think, you know, that is really important. And so in that post-quake period, that meant that the kids went back to school. They couldn't go into the buildings at first, but they used, we had tents on the, fields and so they went back to school for a few hours a day just to hang out with their friends and after the girls died for us it meant that we had um we put in place some kind of routine and honestly I'm really as I say I'm using that word routine very broadly we'd get up in the morning (laughs) that was the first attempt was to get up and have coffee and go and walk the dog I nearly said dogs but we only had a dog at that point and then come back and get in the car and go and do something you know there was as anyone who's lost someone will know there's always jobs to do and because we weren't in lockdown we were able to go and do something helpful concrete that made you feel like you were this urge to do something when you're so helpless is really important and we come back and have lunch and you know and then have a cup of tea and then it would be time later on to have a glass of wine and dinner in bed so it was a pretty pitiful routine but it is really important just to put a bit of structure around your days as best you can. And I think in all of my work, what I'm trying to do is get people to understand, kind of give them the scaffolding of the ideas that will help them. So that I think just knowing that if you can put some semblance of routine back into your life, that's going to help you. I'm hoping that that's helpful. And that's what we hear from people is helpful. And then absolutely coupling that with the fact that this is not a routine that's sent to, you know, that you're meant to beat yourself up about. (laughs) It's not meant to make life harder and worse and not something to judge yourself by, but just to know that um, over time what you're trying to do is help your brain.
2: One thing that then sounded somewhat heartening beyond that is when you mentioned about thinking styles and you talk about optimism in your book, but you also mentioned about hopefulness. You mentioned about small hopes. I really like Mm. the idea of small hopes. Can you tell us more about that?
1: Yeah, I um, got this idea from a lecture when I was at the University of Pennsylvania from um, an amazing professor called Chris Futner, And I write about this in my book. And he talks about the fact, So he is the, I can't quite remember his title, but he's at the Children's Hospital in Philadelphia. And one of his, and he heads the palliative care team in um, pediatrics. So, you know, he's right at the worst end of child hospital life. And what he has found is that people, when they deliver the worst news possible, that you are going to lose your child, he has started to ask those people, given we've told you, you know, the worst news and given we can't do anything to avoid that, that your child is going to die, what are you hoping for now? You know, what can we do? And by asking them this question, he is alluding to the fact that as humans, we don't just have one hope. We think we have one hope and that is to keep the child alive. But when that hope, is shut down it makes you realize there are other little smaller lesser hopes contained within our hearts and our minds Um, and that might be you know to have this child baptized to bring this child home to stop the feeding and the medication to bring other members of the family into the mix sorry about my dogs barking but (laughs) we're in lockdown and there's not much i can do about that and so for me, I kind of always visualized this, the kind of moving of the goal, goal posts, you know, that you have your goal posts, you, you kind of think, you know, where you're the path you're going down in life and what's important to you. And obviously for me, that was keeping my three children and husband alive. And when you can't do that anymore, it's really, it was really useful for me to think, okay, what is important to me now? You know, what am I hoping for now? Um, and it identified that I do have new hopes and that is that we will stay together as a family that we will stay together as a couple and that we will be able to kind of continue to live some kind of meaningful, hopeful, useful life as Abby's legacy. You know, I've been, I'm pretty driven to make something good come from the shortness of her life, you know, so that she does have a lasting legacy, even though she was only with us for such a short period of time.
0: Lucy, I'm, I'm fascinated by, I suppose, your use of the word we there and even talking about us. And, and it seems to me that at first glance, grief can be something which seems so intensely personal and, and almost individual that we go through. But from the way that you describe that there, in terms of the connection with your husband and even, you know, kids getting back to school after the, the Christchurch earthquakes and things like that, it seems to me that there's a real... Well, yeah, I suppose a social connection that can really enhance someone's experience of grief. I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit for us.
1: Yeah, I think that's um that's a really interesting question, Rowan, isn't it? And I do speak about us and I do more so now. I Actually, after the first few years after the girls died, I was so acutely aware that our dear boys were 14 and 15 on the day she died and 14 and 16, you know, soon after terrible age to be male and having having your mother speak for you so I tried really hard not to do that but now they're 23 and 21 and we've come a long way as a family and we, we do talk a fair bit about Abby and the girls now and yeah we try and make the most of life together and I don't know where the kind of it is really true that when the girls died we had Abby home um so that's a fairly typical thing to do in Aotearoa, New Zealand. It is a practice that comes from our indigenous people, the mana the people of the land, the Māori, and um, so because of them and that, we brought her body home and so we had her at home for five days, which, you know, is a game changer in terms of grief, really. It sounds really spooky, and it was really spooky the first time we did this when my mum died back in the year 2000. But it absolutely does take a more collective form approach to grief, which I think we can all learn so much from the Indigenous people of the world. Us, you know, white people can be so stupid, and we have alienated ourselves from grief and medicalized it and tried to avoid it in so many ways and yet of course death is part of life you know <laughs> everyone's going to die we all have to learn to deal with grief and death so I do talk about it as our because actually one of the things that we did I don't know why but we did kind of take community approach to grieving and one of the reasons Trevor and I always got out of the house every morning um, in that first week was so that people could come to the house that you know we lost three beautiful women in our village. We're a small village. And so there was a lot of people who had a lot of need to grieve. And and I I, I don't really know what the words are around this. I don't really know how to express this, but I, but I wanted to give them access to Abbey. And it's not like I would say I was trying to teach them about grief because that is way too deliberate and intentional and that wasn't what I was doing at all. But I, maybe I did kind of, Intuitively, think we all had an opportunity to learn about grief um, collectively, and and I certainly believe in community resilience, and that we are so much stronger together than we are as individuals. Uh, you know, the standout finding of resilience research is that nobody goes it alone, and we are so much better off if we can reach out to other people and share our life experiences, better and worse. So. Yeah, it's funny how all of that I think maybe was just sort of subconscious thinking on our behalf. And we're pretty you know, we're open people. So, you know, we don't find it hard to open the house
2: up. And that comes across strongly as you describe that bereavement is something to be shared, is a way you put it. And you highlight also the impact that social support can have. So part mm-hmm. of it is sharing the the emotions and the experience of grieving, being together at those times, but how much difference it makes when people offer active social support. Would you like to say a little bit more about how you experienced some of that or how you think that makes such a difference?
1: Yeah, um, and our community was absolutely incredible in um, rallying around us um, in so many different ways, you know, and, and this is something that anyone can do if they are trying to support someone who is navigating grief is to firstly understand that we need more than just emotional support. We also need practical support. And so we had people, for instance, because the girls were all killed um, in a car accident and because it was on Queen's birthday weekend, you know, a public holiday weekend, and we have a terrible road toll here in New Zealand. Our roads, frankly, are pretty dangerous, open and fast. And so... We had somebody in our village just say, "I'll do the media for you. I'll, I'll self-appoint myself to be the media um, liaison." And he came to see us and asked us if we wanted to talk to them. We said no, we don't want to talk to them. So he just stood in the you know village talking to one news and all the newscasters in the mornings. Um, and we had another friend who acted as I don't know where you call him vicar or whatever it is in the you know who did the service for the abbey and. Yeah, so we did uni practical support as well as emotional support. So if you're supporting somebody who's going through grief, it is really important to know that that there are so many different ways you can help them. You can be there to be a shoulder to for them to cry on. But the other thing you can do is just listen to them. You know, listen to their story. Listen to particularly if it's traumatic uh, or drawn out. You know, actually just let them tell you about what they've gone through. And for anyone who's listening, who is endeavouring to support someone who is navigating grief, understand that actually the single most important thing you can do is listen to them. Let them tell their story and you'll notice they want to talk about it. And I think that's once you know that as a grief supporter, you for the rest of your life will notice how much people want to talk about their grief story. And it's really important to do so because in doing so, they are kind of building up this mental, they're kind of making sense of what has happened to them. And actually, what we know from bereavement research now is that bereavement really is a process of coming to terms with and making sense of what has happened to you and how on earth you are going to rebuild your life, given what's happened to you. So it is actually, it's a really cognitive thinking process. So the more you talk to someone, the more you let them talk about it, the more you listen. I should say the more you listen, the more you let them talk. What you're doing is enabling them to go through this process of sense making. um, And it takes time.
2: Another thing that you highlight is character strengths, and that's one thing that our listeners would be aware of to some extent because our original name for the podcast was character strengths and silver linings uh, mm-hmm. in relation to lockdown. So uh, I understand that you've done some research on character strengths also in the context of grieving. and was wondering, do particular character strengths stand out as having some extra benefits in that context, or do all strengths apply in Uh, in different ways, or how would you see the role of character strengths in grieving?
1: So, great question. I'm all about being honest and true and not real, not perfect. Never did the research. I wrote about doing the research in my book and thought I would do the research and spoke to Ryan Nemec at the VR Institute, and we've got a code in that book so that, in Resilient Grieving, in that book. So if you go and do the VR online, um, it asks you to put a code in um, which meant that we could analyze later on were there particular strengths that came to the fore when people were grieving? But after I wrote the book, really my life has just got busier and busier. And so I've never actually, Ryan and I have discussed. I think it is it is possible for me to find those via strength surveys that people who have done them. But I have to be honest and say I haven't. So um, what I can say is that um, with my discussions, with ryan we have identified that people's strengths sometimes shift so for those listeners who have ever been online and a via survey which is VIA dot strengths dot something like that isn't it com um it ranks your strengths um your 24 character strengths as well you answer all these questions and then it gives you an email back of your current kind of strength profile which of those 24 strengths are most important and most valued by you you know which do you really resonate with and so it's a really interesting thing to do and I've done it first in 2009 so you know I've been doing looking at my strengths and being aware of what my strengths are and also really intentionally aware of making sure I use them in my everyday life so I've been doing that as a kind of practice general living. For quite some time, when the girls died, um, and what I noticed was that different strengths came to the fore. Um, and but my real, real kind of Marty Seligman would call you signature strengths actually were the ones that saved me. And they did some of them. So you know, I can explain this better if I share what my strengths are. So my normal strengths, my real key strengths, according to the VIA survey, when I've done that several times over the last more than a decade now. Our love, love of learning, curiosity, gratitude, optimism, and... I
2: think really um, perseverance was another one and maybe enthusiasm oh, yeah. as well.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, so really interesting. So enthusiasm, understandably, no enthusiasm. I lost all of my, they would call it kind of zest or enthusiasm. I think it's a rare person who goes through grief and finds them kind of bouncing like Tigger. So, so that was a really good example of how they shifted the core ones, apart from zest and enthusiasm, stayed the same. And they were kind of, they provided the roadmap for me of how to cope with my grief. So, you know, love was, I've just wanted to put all my attention on, on the boys and the fact that we are so lucky to have our beautiful boys and my husband and the gratitude kind of emerged in this sense that i had this phrase in my head to say choose life not death don't lose what you have to what you've lost and so you know i was really definitely focused on making sure that that the boys could continue to live as good a lives as possible and that they weren't bogged down and you know really shackled by abby's death because i wanted to choose life i wanted to choose And free them as much as I could. And then hope, as I've said, you know, is absolutely vital. But also this love of learning and curiosity, you know, that is what led me to start to be curious about whether bereavement needed and positive psychology were two fields that needed to meet. You know, in typical academic tradition, you've got all of these bereavement researchers over in one ivory tower and all of these. You know, positive psychology, well-being science, resilience research is in another ivory tower. And seriously, like they'd never bumped into each other. And that just really annoyed me and frustrated me. So my own kind of academic contribution has been to look at the bereavement research, of which there was very, very little on hope and positive emotions when I first started looking at it, you know, how many years, seven years ago, but also to look at the positive psychology research and say, well, actually, how much of this can be useful when pitted against bereavement, you know when up when you're up against really tough losses. So that love of learning as a strength and that curiosity to be my own self experiment to see which of the tools and strategies that I've been taught at Penn were going to be useful to me now, I think you know that's a really good example of how my own strengths came to the fore to to help me, and for my husband. You know fairness is his strength humor is his strength storytelling are his strengths and you know i could see all that going on with him as well so yeah definitely play an important role what are your both of your strengths tell me that
2: uh, i think curiosity
0: perspective love of learning all the you know neurotic and cognitive ones but <laughs> Little, yeah. enough,
2: those are three we share yeah
0: exactly <laughs> exactly so Lucy, it's been so interesting to talk to you about all this stuff to do with grief because I suppose much of the the grief that you've gone through in many ways has has been to do with with trauma as well. And and it's one thing that's come up on the podcast a little bit before is trauma and and people dealing with trauma reactions at the same time. And and what I wonder is how does trauma impact grief? Because potentially for for something like, for example, intrusive thoughts, that could come with a traumatic effect that could mm. potentially affect the way that we experience grief, whether it be through, through more of those kind of intrusive thoughts, that the grief hijacks I think you uh, mm. talked to them about. So, yeah, could you just talk to, that, uh, talk to that for us?
1: Yeah, it is. I have been really fascinated about the post-traumatic growth research and how many people who go have to deal with grief, grow from the experience. And I i don't think that is a message that is often heard. You know, I don't think people really do talk about that enough. So I'm talking about Calhoun and Tedeschi's work here, which I'm sh- sure you're both familiar with. But, um, you know, the bottom line is that grief and growth often come together. And post-traumatic growth is basically defined as positive psychological change that occurs as a result of the struggle that comes from the trauma or the struggle that comes from highly challenging life circumstances. And what we see and what Calhoun and Tadeshi have been researching post-traumatic growth for decades, and their work and others' researchers have identified five domains of post-traumatic growth and I might just run through these now because I think there right. there's so little understood about this and and then let's talk about you know the expectation of post-traumatic growth not being helpful <laughs> I think we do need to talk about that but firstly those five domains are um, the first one we call personal strength that people when you interview the bereaved they Often tell you, or even cancer survivors, you know, people who, as I say, have been through highly challenging circumstances, they are amazed by their increased sense of kind of self-reliance. You know, they the typical kind of thing that they say is, I had no idea I had it in me to get through this. You know, I'm I'm much more vulnerable, but I'm also stronger than I ever imagined. So they talk about the vulnerability. Um, because they realize that shit truly happens. But they really also talk about the fact that they have learned as a result of the struggle from this experience about the bounds of their own personal strength, and it's amazed them. Um, So the second dimension is that you hear people talking about the changes in their relationships with others. Um, So, you know, sometimes the bereaved talk about that their relationships shift you know people disappoint very often in grief um, and other people come to the fore but often what we hear is that people are very willing and do talk to those close to them about more openly about how much they mean to them they really are more forthcoming in saying you know I love you I need you I value you and Shakespeare Finch's work here has been really important, identifying that. And so I want to give a nod to her, Australian. The third is that when people have been interviewed and have given a sense that they have grown from this struggle, they've talked about a sense of new possibilities, you know. So very often their life takes a kind of a new form or shape. And, I, you know, I can so relate to this, all of this work I'm doing in Resilient Grieving. I never would have done if I hadn't, if Abby hadn't lived, if she hadn't died. And I hadn't gone through that struggle afterwards. You know, it was that kind of whole sense of what is important to me now, where do I want to focus my attention? And so you hear a lot of people talking about they develop new interests or habits, or they build a new career, that kind of thing. The fourth is they have a new appreciation of life. And so uh, Jake Bailey, who was, you might go and have a look at his Christchurch Boys High speech he was the chief monitor at boys high um in the year that he got cancer and he did the most incredible speech and he's living in australia now and um he does lots of work in the field in around kind of positive psychology and having talked to jake and interviewed him he you know he'd be the first person to say that cancer you know that kind of i I'm going to say it. cancer is a gift, it isn't a gift. I know it's not a gift. he knows it's not a gift. but people who really see that that second chance of living, having navigated the awful thing that they've had to go through, they really have this renewed appreciation of life, the whole kind of smelling of you know smelling of the roses. It's so hard to talk about this without sounding naff and diminishing and belittling, and so I'm you know, for anybody listening please don't think that I'm ever saying that it is good to go through these highly challenging circumstances because you get all this great stuff the other side it's not I would like to choose not to have done this and I know Jake and anybody else who has experienced post-traumatic growth would say the same you know I used to argue with Marty Seligman that you know I remember him saying well your life is better he didn't say this of me but he would say of post-traumatic growth that people say their life is better off than before. I remember saying to them, "Not better off, you know, just completely different." Um, and the fifth and the final dimension of post-traumatic growth is really what they, the, the researchers, call spiritual and/or existential change. So what they mean by that is where you just look at life completely differently, and you are forced to question the big. Life's big questions that most people avoid most of the time. You know, what's it all about? Why about bother? You know, why are we on this planet? Is there a God? If there's a God and I have these spiritual beliefs, then why would they do this to me? So, you know, pretty fundamental life shift. And that is because when you experience trauma or some kind of really highly traumatic, challenging event, it comes into your life suddenly and it smashes Apart, your what we call in psychology your life schema, you know the way you think the life life should work, your kind of life plan, what you thought was going to be happening to you. Literally, I can envisage a wrecking ball just coming to my world and smashing the whole thing apart. And so that's why we have this kind of existential crisis because the structure and the meaning and the rules by which we lived our lives previously have all gone out the window. So yeah inter- interesting topic. I feel like you two know something about you. Um, we were talking the other day, and Chris, you said that you've been doing you're your speaking about post-traumatic growth shortly. Yes
2: with um, Lisa and uh, Richard Tadeshi will be involved in that as well. and um, and so a number of those reactions that you describe people having, well, many people are going to be having that existential crisis now, I imagine. Yeah, well, it's, it's so interesting
0: hearing you talk about some of this stuff and even going back over your TED Talk and some of your earlier stuff and, and just the relevance to what it, I suppose, what's going on in, uh, at mm. the moment uh, in New Zealand, in Australia and, and even other parts of the world as well in terms of the pandemic and, and the associated mm. grief and loss that, uh, that, that comes with the pandemic. So I suppose, yeah, I, I imagine, you know, again, your skills would have been you know put to the test in, in recent times. And I just yeah wonder if if there's anything that I suppose uh, yeah you've maybe learnt from this experience even during the pandemic that I suppose added to your understanding which you know would have been extensive already.
1: One of the things that studies I saw quite recently said suggests that the higher the level of the trauma, the greater the growth can be. And so, what was an interesting observation around our own family during the pandemic is that. So, we do a lot of work online, working with companies all over the world, you know, who are hoping to make their staff more resilient. And so, we've been talking to people all over the world. And as you say, obviously, this pandemic has affected everywhere. We literally have presented everywhere, really. I yeah, <laughs> I think we can say everywhere, really, from Switzerland to Kuala Lumpur to Paris to, yeah, New York and Dallas and everywhere. So, and what people often we do get and think about is, you know, what have you learned about yourself from the pandemic um, and how have you surprised yourself? What are you, what are you really proud of that you've managed to actually, uh, you know, the way you've managed to pivot, keep life going, tackle work with three teenage children or toddlers in the house. and um, And I think it is really important to shift people's attention towards how they have prevailed and how what they have managed to do despite these extraordinary circumstances. And my own personal reflection of that is that, you know, people say, oh, I'm going to do this afterwards and I'm, I'm never going to sweat this more stuff again. I'm never going to, you know, so whatever, whatever their changes. And it had, really did make me notice that all of those changes in beliefs that we made as a result of Abby's loss I'd stuck to, you know, we, um, I don't work weekends. I don't look at email in the evening and I won't, i very, very rarely. I'll work in, in, if I have to work in Europe, then there have been moments where I've had to work at, you know, seven or 9 PM, but really I could count them probably on one hand over the last year. So pretty rare. And so, you know, to me, this kind of really resonates that the higher the level of trauma, the greater. The growth can be, and I would even say that the more consistent the changes are within you, so you know for me I've really noticed that and and I've noticed the opposite and I've been told the opposite that people have said to me very often, you know we've had all these great plans that we weren't going to go back to life as it was. we get out of lockdown and within three weeks we're all working as hard together you know as ever, and nothing's changed, and so that's because it's not acute trauma it's just Bloody challenging, unbelievably odd circumstances, you know. So, I think it's really important to talk a little bit about lockdowns and say to people, you know, highly, they are highly challenging circumstances, but mainly for the drudgery, you know, the lack of opportunity, the fact that every weekend you come to looks exactly the same as the week that you've just lived through, hopefully with less work. But, you know, there's kind of nothing to, there's so, when we are kind of tuned into experiences um and to anticipate you know what we might do at the weekend it's it's really tough on the human psyche when your everyday looks the same so i think it's really important for people to not diminish that to realize that this is extraordinarily odd times they probably won't shift lots of people's habits they might shift people's work habits and that's really good. And certainly lots of the companies we've been working with have started, um, some of them particularly talking about, they call it structured flexibility, where they say to their workforce, this is their you know office-based workforces, that you don't come in on a Monday and you don't come in on a Friday, but you do, everyone comes in on a Wednesday and Thursday. And so all of your kind of team meetings and collaborative work, you need to do, plan it to do it then. Um, and Tuesday, you get to choose what you do. So, you know, that is potentially a really long term legacy that will come from the pandemic where people don't have to commute for an hour and a half every day, regardless of what the job they are doing. And I think that's um, for me, I'll I'll take that as a great shift in autonomy for the planet. And we need to be doing that and a lot less commuting. We need to be doing that for our environment, too. So, you know, it's hard to see what will come of it. But I do think people just need to realise that they will get through this. You know, you've got to kind of take that Gandalf approach of this too shall pass because it will pass, um, and we will get to the other end of it. And the world will look different, and we'll have all learned a bit more. Hopefully.
2: Well, I certainly think it shows how broadly applicable your suggestions and strategies are lucy because uh beyond grief and bereavement but dealing with the challenges across the world that people are at the moment in different ways that the re-establishing routines the small hopes the, the the being open to the good things like that so character strength so many things that you talk about and acknowledging how difficult it is in the meantime that all applies to to yeah the current pandemic and
0: yeah, I was, I was so struck by that even terminology that you just used then, Lucy, the, the shift in autonomy, because mm. to me, there's an element that's, you know, so central to the work that you do even before the pandemic, that it is about a shift in autonomy. It's about empowering people not to just be at the mercy of, of you know, quite mm. legitimate, substantial emotions that people are going to to be feeling at those times. It, it really does seem to me to give people a sense that they can take back control over their life, mm. that- they're not just at the, the mercy of, of perpetual suffering. And there mm. seems to be a real empowerment that I think comes from that. So, yeah, it's incredible mm. work that you do.
1: Thanks. Um, thanks, Rowan. And I think, you know, for me, ultimately, that's what resilience is about, is, is about understanding that you, you want to exert control and influence on your life and the daily kind of happenings of your life um, as much as you can by the way we choose to think and act for ourselves and others you know, so much of what we can do for others is supporting their resilience within the teams that we're existing, you know, whether that's your family or your work teams. So really exerting control and influence, focusing your attention on the things that matter and the things that you control is really important. But at the same time, we have to somehow balance that determination and autonomy with the fact that sometimes in life we have, or all control and so and that is I think the for me the most interesting aspect of resilience is that it is this dance, continual dance between doing what we can and sometimes accepting as gracefully as we can no, you don't need, no you, I'm going to take that back, you don't need to do it gracefully you can do it in whatever way you can, <laughs> but just accepting that sometimes you know shit happens and you can't control everything and you've got to go with it and knowing what you're up against. Having that kind of absolute determination, though, to get through whatever it takes, you know, to do whatever it takes to get you through. And being on a kind of survivor's mission, that is what I've really seen helps people navigate such a broad variation of challenges and threats and losses.
0: Lucy, we have a, a website for the podcast at psychspills.com.au. and I know you mentioned the Judy Moskovitz uh, link that we will put up on that page. We'll put up a link to your TED Talk, uh, your book Resilient Grieving as well. And I also want to make mention, I know you've got some uh, coping with loss programs too mm-hmm. for both uh, health practitioners uh, and also for those who are in a situation where they're feeling bereaved. So thank you so much for for jumping on with us today and having this conversation, which I feel I've got so much out of, um, but also for all the other work that you do. As I mentioned before, it's something that is going to empower so many people at the moment. So thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Lucy. We really appreciate it.
1: Uh, well, honestly, thanks, Rowan. Thanks, Chris. And um, it's great seeing your father-son combo. And actually, <laughs> I've really enjoyed talking to you. and thanks to all your listeners too for you know for showing up and um and together you know we all learn how to um piece our lives together.